0: What's your favorite thing about continuous delivery?
1: What I like the most is just the fact that it lets you get good things done quickly, but also correct mistakes quickly, right? The train keeps moving, but the size of what's on the actual box cars is smaller. There's a marketing strategy and PR strategy, and how that aligns with continuous is tough. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of
0: CircleCI.
2: I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly.
0: And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development.
2: You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast.
0: The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.
2: In this episode, we talk with Kevin Hendrickson, an engineering director for Microsoft Outlook. Kevin talks about succeeding with continuous delivery in mobile development.
0: All right, Kevin, so um, what's your favorite thing about continuous delivery?
1: Good question. I think so. Accompli started kind of the approach when we first started. It was just a couple people. And our deal was like, hey, you're trying to get this thing to work, send email. So it was like, keep checking it in, get closer and closer to kind of the definition of it was working. And then as we started to experiment farther out, we said, you know, what's the right sprint cadence? And we'd come from kind of traditional enterprise companies where, you know, you ship every six weeks or every four weeks. And we're like, oh, we can go faster. People are doing this agile thing. It's like two week sprints. And we tried two weeks and realized that most of the work came in on, You know, Thursday afternoon or Friday kind of thing, because the end of the second week. And so, well, what if we just do one week? Then most of that work will come in, you know, the first Friday. And sure enough, it worked, right? You know, 87% of the work still comes in on the last day or kind of completes on the last day or gets to the point of ready. Um, And so, what we liked is that it gave us a, a much smaller kind of chunk of deliverable, right? So, like the train keeps moving, but the size of what's on the actual box cars is smaller. And so, if you have a problem, it's easier to roll back, easier to fix. Or if you have a problem, you can just patch it quickly because you're used to moving quickly, right? Wow. Or is, yeah. Oh, go go ahead. Ahead. No, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. No, I was gonna say. So on, on like in a traditional world where you know you ship something every six weeks, like you're like, oh yeah, well, we made a mistake. We need to go patch this. Like the patch felt like an exception. And you're like your muscle memory for patching was not there, right? So you're like, ah, oh, we do it now. Do we? Is it worth it? Do you know? And then it's like, well, if you're five weeks in and you discover that thing, it's like, well, the six week thing is out there. Where with if you're shipping every week, you're like, oh, let's patch it. We're like, oh, sweet, we shipped yesterday. We just click the button again and it builds and it goes, right? So you've built the muscle memory to move quickly, right? And so I think the what I like the most, kind of going back to the specific question, is just the fact that it lets you, you know, get good things done quickly, but also correct mistakes quickly, right?
2: Wow. So this is a good time for you to introduce yourself.
1: Cool. So uh, Kevin Henrikson uh, currently uh, manage the Outlook kind of non Windows teams at uh, Microsoft. So Outlook for iOS, uh, Android, and Mac. Previously, I was VP of Engineering at Accompli, which was a mobile startup uh, focused on iOS and Android.
2: Yeah. So you had a lot of good thoughts right then. One of the things I wanted you to talk more about is why do you think seventy for ninety percent of the work is always on the the last day?
1: Yeah, I think people are kind of deadline driven. I think generally they say, hey, you know, they want to work to the last minute, and I think software development ends up being. This thing where you're never done. And so the only way to define done is to actually draw a line and say this is done. And then still some things still miss that line. And so the the tighter you give the window for things to get done, the more often they'll hit that window, right? Because you, you've kind of broke things into smaller chunks, right? It also, because software is kind of this long lasting thing that never is kind of done done, that you end up with. If the chunks are small, people are able to estimate and think through. It's like, oh, is that gonna take me a day? Very rarely does somebody think something's gonna take them a day that takes months. Like, mm-hmm. but very often, like if you think something will take months, it may take many, many months, right? Like, because it's just right. it's hard to guess how because it just there's so many variables and things, so many things are gonna change in the environment or in what you're doing before you get there. So I think the, the short answer is if you if you start with a smaller window um, and more discrete small tasks. Those tasks are easier to estimate. They're easier to consume. They're easier if you get disturbed, like oh, I'm gonna go down and get a soda, or somebody asks me a random question because some fire comes up. I'm still like I can kind of make it up because I was only expecting to spend half my day working on that, anyways. And so I think that kind of works out in in our favor.
0: So there's an implication with what you said there that the task sort of grew because it was two weeks rather than. I mean, yes. So I guess the phrasing is. When it was two weeks, was it that a one week task had grown to two weeks? Or was it that that things got cut when when it got shrunk down to to one week and you ended up with, you know, technical debt or something along those lines?
1: I think it was a couple combinations, right? So I think the, the the if you feel like you have two weeks to work on a task you will spend more time kind of polishing or, or or potentially doing things that aren't on the critical path to getting it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's natural, right? Like maybe it is you're paying off too much technical debt right in the startup world, like you can only you have to kind of have that lever. Um, and even in just kind of you know general software development, like you have to have a lever. We're not launching the space shuttle here. Like mm-hmm. there's room for like some wiggle room and, and imperfection. And I think breaking it into small pieces lets people, you know, focus on, hey, I'm only gonna do this and I have this much time to do it, where you say, hey, it's got two weeks. You may be, you know, deep into the second week and saying, you know, I just don't like my approach, I'm gonna change it. And mm-hmm. you basically end up throwing away a week's of work where is if you're thinking that, hey, the deadline's coming in a week, you're gonna m- make that kind of epiphany like, oh, I made a mistake or I've taken the wrong path much quicker. So I think it allows you to kind of break your decision-making and, and optimize on getting it done because the, the window is kind of quickly approaching being a one-week sprint versus two.
2: This this might sound like seven-minute abs, but why not two-day sprints?
1: Yeah, so I think we, 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 and two days are great things, right? Or one-day sprints, yeah. right? I mean, how, how do you continue to make it faster? So for us, there was sort of one artificial gate, which was the fact that you really can't ship quicker than about a week with Apple, and even then... You know, it, it sometimes slips by because you know four or five days, and during a peak season, if there's lots of apps like in Christmas holiday or around an, a new uh, platform update, you know you'll see a spike in the in the review times. And so, so Apple kind of we and we were an iOS app first before we ported to Android, and so that that ended up driving us towards a little bit to a week because it was like if you shipped on Monday the app would get in the store you know, sometime end of that week. And that was a natural cadence to kind of start the next one. So you, it's really hard um, without kind of pushing the emergency release button, which Apple only lets you do once or twice a year to ship more than once a week. And then we kind of let the rest of the team fall behind that. right? If you're only shipping the app once a week, let's keep the new chunks of new work or big bug fixes to that path on our service and, and the way our architecture is, and we can talk about that more, but we spend as much, you know, 70 some percent of the logic or the ant is down deep in the service because that we can update all the time. So, hey, we push a release out, I want to fix something, we fix it in the service the same day, right? Oh, interesting. And so that allows us to have a much more kind of agile approach because the, the service is constantly being updated, but the app is kind of gated in one week chunks. So, so what you're saying is that, that the, the biggest
0: impediment to shipping frequently is Apple.
1: The platform, yeah. The pl- the platform basically Apple's review, and, and specifically, it's it's the fact that Apple has. A review process, which is great, right? Like that Apple review process, you know, generally keeps the bar of apps better mm-hmm. and, and kind of puts some good discipline inside of the the wider range of development people that are coming to the Apple platform. But it also, you know, for, when you want to move quickly, it, it, you, it you can't, right? You're you're basically the the platform itself kind of enforces this four to seven day lag in, in shipping.
0: So you you're you're now running teams that are shipping on non Apple platforms, correct? Um, did you guys make any changes to your to your release cadence as a as a result of that?
1: Yeah, so I think on Android for example, we still kind of keep to like the one week chunk of we plan a sprint, build for a week, you know, release to our beta group or dog food users and then release to production. But Android gives you this advantage where you can do percent-based rollout. And so mm-hmm. with Android, we end up releasing usually two or three times a week. So you'll release kind of the release on Monday, at like one or one to two percent, kind of walk that up three, five, ten percent. Usually at five or ten percent, you can pick some new signal of crash or behavior that you wanna adjust, make a hot fix, push another release, start at ten percent, twenty percent. Ah, oh, you see another one you wanna tweak, hit twenty percent, and then finally from twenty or thirty you end up going all the way to one hundred.
0: Right. Do those Android users Help you on, on the other platforms as well? Or are they finding crashes that, that also exist on the other platforms?
1: So, we're, today we're 100% native on both. So, there's no okay. shared code between iOS and Android wow. from the mobile app perspective. Obviously, from the service, it's 100% shared right. code. And so, um, what we've actually done in the past is when we launch a new feature that we think is either controversial or has a, a high chance of risk, for example, when we launched IMAP support, we launched generic IMAP support. On Android first, knowing that we could patch it quickly and, and adjust if, if things went wrong, simply because there was no way to test the millions of random IMAP servers in the world and get any kind of focus mm. thing. Where we, we talk to Gmail or Yahoo or iCloud, right, 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 right. single point. That's
0: really interesting, actually. The the, the the idea that because the the rollout or the the sort of safety features are are only supported on Android, that people will end up building features there first. Yeah.
2: How deliberate did you have to be about putting stuff in the service versus in the apps, or was this a lesson you learned?
1: So we had always thought of the service as the place where we wanted to do as much of the logic that could break or heart, right? You just don't wanna do it twice. Like you don't wanna implement ActiveSync twice, you don't wanna implement an IMAP stack twice, and it also allowed us to pick a protocol between our cloud service and the mobile app that was optimized for mobile right so it's, you know think of the the api shape of the api looks closer to the screen of the app right it, like there's a request for like get my mm-hmm. inbox and then make a change and where if you think of imap or the myriad of email protocols that we talked today they don't have that very linear type of approach of like Give me this screen. Give me that screen. They're they're not, they're they're thought of in a way where you're going to sync all the mail down to your desktop client yep. and then manipulate it locally and then sync changes back up in some you know either connected or disconnected state. And so, so the service was basically set to put complex logic, but also to allow us to get leverage because everything we could build in the service was one less thing we'd have to do twice on the client mm-hmm. um, because we picked a path that we didn't support. We didn't basically have a lot of shared code in the client. There's essentially none, just the API. And it's the same service that, that, that sits
2: behind all of the different clients on, on the different correct.
1: Yeah, so we have a single cloud service that basically powers both the iPhone client and the Android clients.
2: That's interesting. So is was at Trippin and we had a lot of similar issues. Like we were at one time one of the biggest um, OAuth users of Gmail.
1: Okay, awesome.
2: Because people would sync yep. their, their Gmail calendars. with us yep. and their calendars. Did you find there was a difference between? The UE or the app experience that Android and
1: iOS wanted, and how much did you bifurcate that? For sure. So a lot of people ask is like, hey, did you launch a feature first on Android or iOS? Or do you always have to make them come out identical? And my answer to that's pretty simple. It's like most normal people carry one phone. They're either mm-hmm. an Android user or an iPhone user. And so they don't know that you released it first on Android or iPhone because you didn't tell they don't carry both phones. And so we think of that from a feature point of view, when they're done, they're done, we ship it. Now if we're trying to line a press event around something, we'll, we want to make sure that they're both there before we do the press event. One may come out a day or two before the other. But generally speaking, we don't try to you know legislate like, hey, you can only, you have to do it this way because it works on iPhone. And in fact, we actually took a different approach where we said hey, we wrote it one way on iPhone and then when we went to Android, it wasn't just like, oh, go port all the screens over. It was like, what would this screen look like for an Android user? So we want our apps on the mobile device and and most mobile users want to look at an app and feel like it fits in with the rest of their phone. And so the way that an Android navigation works, the way that people use the back button or not. Is very different on iPhone and Android. And so and the fact that there's widgets and the way that the widgets are exposed on Android and the way that most people want to integrate deeper into the platform. And so those kind of things we let go with the platform. And so our view is write it in native code because it allows us to take advantage and move quickly to the platform specific features, but it also lets us tailor the experience and the UI and the UX to whatever those that user base wants.
0: Yeah. It's it's interesting that um that you talk about it that way because the in the old days you know, kind of 10 years ago when people were making when uh, multi-platform applications yeah. there, there was a tendency of people to try to make it all match to the same the you know the, the Firefox is, is a good yeah. example here or, or, or Chrome or, or kind of one of those tools that the people use on all platforms was designed to look the same on every machine even though people didn't have that multiple machine and I think one of the the nice thing that's that's happened with the mobile ecosystem is that people have thrown away that that, that concept and they've made it actually feel native for the for each of the platforms.
1: Yeah, and I think that also goes to feature set, right? Like you would think of like a traditional app as like, oh, if it works this way on Mac or on Windows or on the web, mm-hmm. you would expect 100% kind of feature parity between all those platforms. And today on mobile, we go and select what do you actually use? And there's features that exist in mobile only, right? There's Because mobile has all this additional context of your location and where you are and what you're doing? Are you running? Are you driving? Right? There's there's other sensors in the in, in the devices today that allow you to build specific features that are richer. And so you know we always thought of you know at a company now, like is rather than sending more email, send better email. Right? Mm-hmm. Like don't say I'm running late. Say I'm running late and I'm here, and send <laughs> a quick tap of a button to put the map and show you that oh I'm 20 minutes away, or I'm on the train, or I'm at the train station. And so people can understand like you don't have to type out how many minutes it's going to take. <laughs> you don't know, right? Like you are, are you walking? Are you driving? Like Well, and plus, people
2: lie all the time. Like I'm on my way has a pretty loose meaning of anywhere from I might leave my house in 30 minutes to yeah,
1: and depending on the context, right, what that person's thinking. So yeah, good point. So one of the interesting things that you
0: said there is that that it might take a day or two when you're trying to launch something. It might take they might actually land a day or two apart. And on this show, one of the things we try to do is we try to pitch Edith's business, yeah. um, which is feature flags as a service. I never, darkly. Knew, you, I never com.
2: knew you did that, Paul.
0: <laughs> it, it would seem to me that, that a kind of best practice there is is to release the code and not have the code be a blocker on the launch. So the code is there, but it's behind a
1: feature flag. Yep. Do you guys do that much? So we have feature flags, we have flight, we call it flighting, same idea. And so we launch all kinds of dark features on the server in particular. So there's mm-hmm. all kinds of things that we've built that Are currently in production on the service that the production app may not take advantage of, right? Great example is like we launched avatar support and it fit with the UI of, of Android better, and so we turned it on there and didn't turn it on on iOS because we're still working through how, how we want that UI to lay out, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in that kind of case, and maybe we'll turn it on for some percentage of users and test right, it, right? right, and so yeah, we basically think through like what are the features that make sense. I think the one piece that we're a little different than people that kind of go crazy with tons of feature flags is that we actually try to like think through like, is it is this something we're gonna want to potentially toggle on or off rather than adding a flag for everything? Simply because when you have when you end up with a large number of flags, the interdependencies right, and the right. combinations become very hard to test, even at the scale we're at with millions and millions of users. You just can't get to the combinations, and then you make a mistake, and, yep, yep. and developers are like, "Oh, well, you didn't have X, Y, Z default on. You weren't running experiment three, right?" And so those kind of things. And so for certain things, we don't feature flag. And the fact that we always people used to ask early days, "Were well, you guys do A/B testing?" And we're like, "Yeah, we do A/B testing every Friday. We ship a new build, right?" And so <laughs> like, as a startup, we were A/B, we, Our way, right. we would just make the change. And now the user base is bigger, right? With you know millions and millions of users using the app, we need to be a little more thoughtful in terms of how you roll that out. Um, And so, in this case, we are using some more flighting type feature flag stuff Mm -hmm. to enable uh, those you know the users to see features in in kind of waves.
2: So, so let's walk through this. um, I think I heard it called a shipping Friday. So every Friday you shipped. What would you do if there was a, a bad release out in the field for a week?
1: I mean, it'd be very hard for it to ever show up in a week. Like we would notice it, like you know. So the our process basically is we we plan the day on Monday, review kind of the previous week's work, code Tuesday through Friday. We ship to testing on Friday. Test Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. We have a team that basically does testing overnight on those three days. Monday morning, we get the report, and then we decide to push it. We push it to our beta users, and so there's a lot of gates. Kind of, there's a a set of QA and kind of manual testing that happens over the weekend. There's a beta test uh, kind of dog food that happens. You know, the first few days of the week, then we kind of push it live. Um, And like I said, those kind of things. If it's a really you know, and so we can split the platform right. So if it's an Android bug, we usually can fix it like within an hour. It's very quick to push a new Google app. Our Android app um, with an iPhone issue or iOS issue, it we have to determine the severity of it, and if it's something that needs a critical fix, we'll push the red button with Apple that says we need expedited review, which usually can bring the time down from a week down to a, about twenty four hours. But no guarantees. Like it's just best effort, and so that's that's what we do now. There's many cases where we disable features, right? Like you've IMAP, for example. We turned on, we started seeing a lot of problems. We turned it off to us a few countries that we saw more problems from, and it was very popular IMAP servers in those countries. We didn't support, and so we just disabled it on a geo basis. And so there are places where we've turned off things where we had put a feature flag in place to to do that, but it really depends on the feature. Some big UI changes are hard to feature flag and so those you have to deal with, um, but fortunately those cause a lot less crashes because UI is just not as unstable of code as the kind of core sync code.
2: Is there ever something that you really re- wish that you'd put a feature flag on that you didn't?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. I think I mean we we had a we we shipped iOS nine on the day iOS nine launched and had a crasher, so there was a migration hmm. bug. And so I mean, but I, I don't know how you could have turned off iOS nine, right? Like you know, right, you, right, so, right. some of these things you just are. And then you know, we pushed the button and we had it took us two days, so we had to eat one star reviews for two days, uh, which was super painful. But they hurt. Yeah, you, they're they're pretty permanent.
2: Well, they hurt, and you and then they write mean things, and it just stings. Yeah, I, I right. got you know a trip that we we were over all five, but when you get a one star, you feel the pain. Personally.
1: Y- yep. Yeah. You get thick skin.
0: So you were saying um, you're releasing something to testers over the weekend and then it goes out to, to the beta channel the next week. Yeah. So if the testers gave you a bad report and you needed to pull it, then you end up in the situation of I, I presume of you know, instead of a week's changes going out, you now have two weeks changes going out, and and if that's you know, bad, it might, might stack up with three weeks changes, and then suddenly you're out of continuous
1: delivery. You've got a big risky release going out. Any any experiences with with that? Yeah, so we we've had that frequently. So usually what happens though is because you've only written code for four days. We're able, we usually I always say, like, if it takes us four days to write the code, it can, we, can, we should be able to fix it within four hours. And so we fix it Monday and just ship it and take the risk that, hey, we thought we'd, you know, extra code reviews, very aggressive look. And then we ship it to dog food. So we usually very rarely skip an entire week mm-hmm. where, we, where we pull through that. We almost always find a way to ship it. And everybody kind of rallies around that as a cultural thing. Is it like, hey, if there's something wrong or a crasher comes through and we can't fix it, like, every, it's kind of all hands on deck to sort it gotcha. out. Right, um, and the, the one piece I did miss is we internally dog food every check in, right? And so, t- the way that our system works is when you check in code, whether it's on the app or on the service, within about three minutes, it's pushed to your phone, and so or it put the service has been updated, and so yeah, the yeah, service yeah, yeah. is constantly updating with every check in, and so things that are very critical, like, and so we say, well, what's a critical bug? Well, oh, I can't send email, or I can't reply, or forward, or like a button mm-hmm. doesn't work, like that stuff's found like within minutes of it being checked in because there's a you know. The dev team's relatively large and we're all running that app and so we're seeing those kind of things like, whoa, I don't like this, jump on chat and tell everybody, like, hey, let's go look at this.
0: Gotcha. So you just stop shipping new things if there's if there's a problem, you like all hands on deck to, to fix the actual problem. Yep, and
1: and you like I said, usually with you know when you only had four days of change, kind of at the maximum. Yeah, usually within it within a few hours, we can figure out what's going on and either disable it, right? Like for example, in the in the case of when we shipped the iOS nine crasher, it was with Spotlight indexing. It was the new kind of indexing feature in iOS nine. We just disabled Spotlight indexing, cut a new build, and we shipped it within gotcha. an hour. So right. like most. Again, you know, it's never perfect. The software is an imperfect trade, but most things we can figure out soon enough, or be able to kind of roll it back or disable it. Right. One of the big releases that I was
0: part of uh, that went badly on, on this kind of thing was was the Firefox four release. So it took eighteen months to go from Firefox three to Firefox four, and, and the main reason was, you know, there'd be a big feature that would go out, and the big feature would be. Buggy and would need a lot of work, and so it wasn't just wasn't ready to go out. And in the meantime, other teams are are getting you know working on their own thing. Things are getting included, and in the end, something that was supposed to be a I think a six month release ended up taking eighteen months before it went out. Yeah, it's and there, there was stuff that was ready, you know, new CSS features, the sort of thing that you don't want to wait eighteen months to, to yeah, be released. Yeah, compatibility stuff. Yeah, yeah. That that was the that was the catalyst for for completely changing to the um to the continuous release model.
2: So you talked about dog fooding. How much do you dog food? Do you require everybody to only do email on their mobile?
1: We don't. So we, we've actually there. There are cases where you know we we block, we could block, or we you know we don't. Though fortunately, everybody uses mobile email, and so I mean it's a pretty light ask. It's not like we're building an app that people would not normally use on their daily basis. So I think the biggest thing is that generally developers on the team don't have the email volume that matches our user base. You know, so generally developers don't get crazy long 120 you know, message threads and gajillion attachments and super long complex HTML and the messages. And so I think the bigger problem is not about people using the app, it's about the data, kind of re- the representation of the data matching our kind of wider user base.
2: Yeah, I asked because uh, Facebook legendarily does not allow people to use Google products. So for example, they use Microsoft Bing instead of Google.
1: yeah. Yeah, no. I I mean, I think companies have those rules, and I think for a long time Microsoft was—they would only pay for your cell phone if you used a Windows mobile phone. So I think that I mean these are common, you know, ways of trying to encourage folks to use what's—and I think those are great. I mean, and they work, but I think there's always exceptions to the rule. I think that you know you also can come blind to competitors by only focusing on your own stuff, and you end up with tunnel vision of saying, "Hey, all I know is how my stuff works with everything else, and I've never worked in a kind of." "Quote unquote real world universe where everything is different. Like where you live in, you know, you have Mac, you have Windows, you have this phone. I have Android devices. I have, you know, with Android in particular, right? There's how many different versions of Android that are out there in the wild today on different all kinds of different hardware, and even from a, you know, the same vendor, you know, there can be. But we can see bugs between Samsung devices, right? And so I think we encourage people to use what they have. You know, people are allowed to expense or buy whatever phone they want. Uh, you know, lots of uh, the team members, especially kind of those of us in support and that are you know dealing with customers, have multiple phones. We have different tablets and phones that are our personal devices that are connected and we're using them kind of switching between them because that's what customers are doing right they're, they're looking at all these platforms and so being familiar with them is one but also just being able to catch issues.
0: So one of the one of the questions that um, or one of the things we talked about with with Chris last week was the the trade-off between doing continuous delivery and, and in, in delivering polish and uh, accompli, had this reputation as as being this incredibly polished product that, that 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 people loved using. It was, you know, the best the best Gmail app. I I think on on iOS was the was the description I've heard. So how wh- how do you feel that that trade off works? Where where you have something which is such like a high degree of polish? How how does it affect what you're shipping and how you ship?
1: First of all, thank you. It's awesome. Yeah, I think I, I yeah we got lots of accolades for our polish, and I think we. We always thought that we could do better. Like the founders were all kind of like plumbers, right? We all worked on infrastructure and backend systems, so UI wasn't our thing. So the thanks really goes to the, the folks on the mobile team, the kind of the experts we hired in that space that that really just really like to hone their craft. Um but it was a constant tension, right? Like there's always this notion of you know kind of the startup lever of you know you have to get function and utility and we're building a utility. we're building an email client like if it's missing big features, like people just can't use it. like if delete is missing and reply all is missing and certain features are missing, you can't use it. And so no matter how polished the send button is, like it doesn't matter if you can't do reply all and it doesn't support BCC and those kind of things. And so there was always this tension between you know how do we get polish and in utility. And I think we we could have got a more beautiful app. And, but potentially a less functional app and who knows how that would have affected the outcome if we would have spent more time on polish and vice versa but I think the what I've learned now is so uh, another team joined Microsoft just after we did called sunrise it was a calendar mm-hmm, right and they were like world-renowned design right like a really really beautiful design and you asked them how they kind of went to their sprints and delivery and their model was more like every six weeks seven weeks and they would it was done when it was beautiful was kind of their mantra versus us it was done on Friday right and so they brought to now we've kind of have a combined team we're working together and they've brought this notion of, oh my gosh, they, they, they basically spend all this time getting the design perfect and honing it. And then, but we are able to ship it every week. And so, the way that we do that now is the design starts about two or three weeks ahead of the, the actual work. And so, we're allowed to get the designs you know, much more, um, more time to get, kind of allow that polish to happen and those designs and mocks to come back very, very high fidelity. So that when we implement it, we know what we're doing. We're completely kind of did design and, and implementation almost in the same week. We would design stuff, spec it on Monday, design it on Tuesday, build it on Wednesday and Thursday. Quick, kind of put some paint on it on Friday, and then ship it on Monday, right? And so it just didn't give you time to kind of get to complete beautiful. And I think now that with the sunrise and kind of integrating that process and the team that they brought over is is really upped our game on the UI side. So if if you're looking for for beautiful, you
0: know, it seems, or if you're looking for you know functional and beautiful, I guess then then shipping constantly would see, would seem to be a a helping hand there but they they literally just like spent six or seven weeks working it internally
1: yeah they would work it internally and continue to polish it and get the feature and the UX just right um and and until they decided hey now this this new chunk of work is done um, and would that
0: involve like user testing and, and tons like, of yeah, gotcha, user testing, right, right, right. data
1: research? And then it also helped because as a startup, like y- you become immune to the press. Like if you're releasing every week and you're like, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this, the press stops writing about you. Yeah. And so the Sunrise did an amazing job of kind of packing up that six week with something mm. a little bigger and dropping a bigger hammer and saying, This is something big and amazing, write about it. And so right. they a lot of the press and kind of attention they got was because they were able to kind of drop these slightly larger releases than a traditional one week kind of bite. Um, that gave them that more atten- additional attention.
0: I, I think that's really interesting. I, I remember one of these sort of um, software marketing 101 things that uh, I think Joel Spolsky talked about well, um, years and years ago was that, that the biggest thing that they could do to get press was just increase the version number. So you know, Fogbugs 5 or 6 or whatever yeah, was, major you know, just just got... At a 20% or 30 percent customer increase just by just by existing and now with continuous delivery we, we've kind of killed that you know no, no, no one talks about the new version of almost anything uh, I, I don't think anyone's ever talked about the new version of Facebook there's there's the there's the new news feed and, and things you can yell about but it's not like you know we've gone to, to Facebook 37 now and it's amazing
2: I disagree with you Paul okay I mean I think it's just that what's gone away is the notion of versioning but yes Facebook does a very good job about announcing new features so does Twitter like they, they push just moments, so and nobody, and like the number is an arbitrary thing, but they're definitely still pushing. Right, a new it, functionality. it feels
0: like it's not. So I, I think there's two things I'm saying. One, one is that releasing features feels like less than than releasing a whole new version, and then the second thing is, is that. Companies of Facebook size and that sort of thing, and Google size, you do good jobs of it. Whereas small startups, it it is very difficult for for small startups to be able to do the same thing when they have that continuous
1: delivery uh, cadence.
2: I think it's just hard for small startups to get press. Period.
1: Yeah, and you need you basically need you need you talked about moments, right? And we always talked about like what's the next product moment. And even in you know inside of a company like Microsoft, that's important too, because like with Microsoft, you have different you have different kind of competing events. Which is there's always lots of things to talk about, and you know aligning your kind of moment with oh they're launching Windows 10 or they're launching Office or they're launching the new Xbox. You know there's very very large events that are like oh the NFL is switching to the next version of Surface. Like these are huge product moments, and like oh I want to talk about my little feature in my app, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I say little, but I mean even at the scale right with millions and millions of users, it's still in the scale of like the NFL switching to the new Surface Pros. Like that's pretty cool, right? Right, like, and so it's you. You have to kind of. There's a marketing strategy and PR strategy, and how that aligns with continuous is tough, right? I think we struggle with that all the time of trying to pick when to turn things on and and when to say, oh, and what things you group together and what's the story because we always figured as a startup, it's like you. It's not about the feature or the moment or the or what version you are. It's the story you're telling, and the version was the easiest way to tell the story. Kind of ten years ago, right, right, right. And today the story is about like, oh, we're launching this new. Capability or this new feature or this yeah. new thing, right? And that's and you that's the story now.
0: I think it's very easy for for companies like Apple and uh, I see AWS doing this as well. That you know they just have this event that everybody pays attention to, everybody listens to, and so they they get to announce you know in a list of features. But they, I remember Amazon launched uh, you know, some changes to Code Deploy in in the last re event and and. Eh, I, I don't know if people really care that much about the new features that has gone into code deploy, but it got it got a, a mention um, because it got packaged in with all this, you know, all, all the other fifty other changes that had happened to AWS and all of the press and everyone was paying attention to it to it that week.
1: Yeah, I think they do a great job of focusing their moments and having a kind of a train of moments, right? And say, Hey, this right. is gonna be Train week and they get you know people to come show up and that they've got a writer that's assigned to sit in every session and write about it. They're going to write about it, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. They're nothing else yeah. they're going to do all day, right? And so I think, yeah. But they're able to create. You, that. you almost have to justify the fact that you've sat in this
0: session for, for the session, last yeah. hour. You have to write something, even if it's the worst thing ever.
2: Yep. Yeah, well, it goes back to. I mean, a lot of startups get paralyzed by fear. They're like, "What if we release a feature and TechCrunch writes about it?" I'm like. TechCrunch is not going to write about your feature. Right, right.
1: right. <laughs> Generally speaking, right? But yeah, the, <laughs> like, the, the 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 press, is, I mean, there's just too many other things to write about cuz they're more interesting in writing about the startup you'd never heard of that got 5 million bucks or 8 million. Right, right. right. And yeah, that's right. more interesting than your feature cuz they've already wrote about you and people roughly know what you do and you're not completely changing the world.
2: Yeah. So so on a detour from press back to something interesting sure. you said, um you 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 told me that you know, your app was loved by users and by IT. So in this world of rapid builds, how did you also win the love of IT?
1: Yeah, so our view and coming from the enterprise world is that, you know, you don't get to choose what software you use at work. And... We felt that that was kind of a, a big sea of change that's going to come over the next couple of decades. Is that mm-hmm. you know people and especially with mobile are getting to choose what apps they run on their phone and using them for work, whether I whether IT has sanctioned them or not. Right? You look at the Dropboxes of the world as right, right. a you know obvious consumerization example. of the enterprise. Yeah, con- consumerization, right? And so then as you do that, you say, okay, well, let's go build things that people love. But I think you know again Dropbox is a great example of building something that that people love, but they've had trouble convincing IT that it's the right solution. Where Box, I think, has done a better job of that because Box went down a much more IT checklist, right? And so when I look at it, there's a there's a security and IT checklist that that's required to get to the IT person, but there's no checklist or or kind of easy way to get to users to love you. And so we spent the Better first year, first year and a half, focusing on getting users to love what we built, and iterating like crazy, and moving and continuously to get them there. And then the you know the plan and the kind of the thinking was is we had all these enterprise trials and one very large enterprise customer with Accompli before Microsoft acquired us was hey we're starting to work down the enterprise checklist because they're going to tell you what they want like it's very clear like I need this SSL thing and I need this HIPAA thing and I need this FedRAMP thing like they're going to tell you what those requirements are and they're not fun. <laughs> but they're but they're, they're, they're very explicit of in fact you know your choice trying to negotiate hey can I do a, a smaller version of that so I think the the mix there is you know and then once you get it in there one of your sales angles is hey oh by the way your users are already using this for home or on the work and you know on their work you know accounts and they're gonna love it when you roll it out and it's By far the best thing you'll trial and kind of a bake off, right? And so that was our strategy to go to to go to market was to say, Hey, you know, let's make it so users love it, spend a bunch of time on that, use that for press and branding, and then, you know, go to the IT folks and, and get them to buy it.
2: Did did they ever challenge you on the weekly builds and how that would affect the stability?
1: So they didn't. I mean, I think the the challenge was more around security and data locality and and things of that nature. Was initially the 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 speed of change didn't seem to be a huge deal in mobile, in particular. Like I said, the actual thing that the users were touching, people are so used to mobile apps updating that that's not a problem. Uh, I think it was more around data data security and compliance around the data platform and you know we had strategies to deal with that either you know keeping the data you know accessing it through a you know secure line or VPN or dedicated lines or using dedicated tenants in AWS or Azure and those type of things so there was ways to kind of get around the compliance thing but the key thing was really where the data was and com- and data compliance and less about how quickly you were updating it Awesome
2: Well thanks Kevin for coming in do you have uh, any final thoughts around software development or continuous delivery
1: I don't. I think it's cool. I mean, so my thing is that if the you know the the faster you go, things break, but the right things break, right? And so I think uh, when we you know when we got acquired by Microsoft, everybody's like, well, no other team can ship every week. This is inc- like that was fun. That was fun as your little startup thing. And I had this deck that I that I present. where it's like, hey, we ship every week and we drink beer on Fridays and release on Mondays. And they're like, that's cool. And it was like a novelty thing. And so they were like, it'll just never work. And so things that were like, you know, we, it's gonna take a week to sign the build because we have all these special requirements. And we said uh, yes. But at the end of the day, like we're gonna push a button and it takes twenty-two seconds. That's what it used to be for. And so they're like, No, no, we'll give you a special deal. It'll be like one day. And we're like, no, that's not possible. We need 22 seconds. And we finally got it to work. But those kind of things we had to break these internal processes and reviews. And and a lot of times it wasn't just a process, but a team involved to kind of help that you can't have humans involved in some of these processes. And so a lot of the continuous thing is how do you automate? And say, look, we can. We'll do everything you're asking us to do, but just let us codify it so that we can push the button and it does it. And we'll trust that we're doing what you asked. Um, And that's the way we kind of got to that back to that kind of high speed delivery. And you know, we're shipping seven days in a very, very large company.
2: Wow, I'd love to hear a, a little bit more about the the tools that make all this happen.
1: Yeah, so there's all kinds of craziness in there. So a lot of the tools that were involved were tools that most of us know today. It's Perl scripts and, and shell scripting and PowerShell and .NET and you know it's it's just code, right? I mean, so like there the you know what does it take to sign an Apple build? Right, you have to run the Apple's code signing tools and have to have the cert and you have to have access to it. And so a lot of it was network VPNs to be able to have the right access to the certs on the right boxes when you're making this this um, that. And you know um, you, you used to have to use a smart card, so we needed two factor auth to sign the build and so you have to literally stick your smart card in the in my laptop my Windows laptop, to get the thing, to get the cert, to sign the Android build, right? And so those kind of things, we said, well, look, there's got to be a way to automate this. How do we go get, you know, two developers, we're going to do two factor. it's going to be me and Paul, and we're going to both say the build shipped and it's been reviewed, and that's, then the automated process kicked off. And so those kind of things we just had to kind of re-envision, but the beauty of setting like, no, no, the goal is seven days, we're going to ship every seven days, and just finding all the things that that broke and kind of going after them and just breaking them and saying, nope, we can't do that, we can't do that, we need this access, we don't need that access. This step was like, oh, we need to review um, like political correctness, right, and make sure that there's no uh, kind of offensive words, because we ship to so many different countries. And how do we do that? And it's like, well, there's tools for that, and that requires submitting it to this team and waiting. It's like, no, no, no. Well, at the end of the day, that's going to be a code and run. Like, how do we just ship that over there and automate it? So it ends up being an automation thing. It's just much like DevOps today. You know, there's teams all around the world with one or two people running thousands and thousands of servers with automation. And so, if you kind of box the the, the, the requirements into the, it has to go quickly, and it has to, you know, just work. You have to just kind of write the code to close that gap, and so um, that's kind of what we did.
0: So when you were making that transition, I guess when, when you went in, you were shipping once a week. Yeah. And did you just refuse to break that once a week thing, or did you submit to their thing and then try to get it back to to once a week?
1: Um, so we refused. So we so when we first got acquired, we were still shipping as accompli mm-hmm. and under our own rules, and we kept shipping. And then in parallel, we were, we knew we were making the switch to rebrand as Outlook. Um, and so as we started to rebrand. It took us about six weeks to go from rebranding to get to Outlook to ship, but we we knew that as that was going like it's taking us six weeks. We like oh, where's the cert at? Well, how do you rename this? What font should you use? Like where's the logo file? Like a lot of things were like one time things, and so mm-hmm. those did take a while. But I think the first couple weeks we were probably shipping more like every ten days, so it was a little longer, and there was a lot of manual elbow grease and like escalation emails and phone calls and things that were are just you know kind of more elbow grease than required to kind of get us through the process where we got it to a point now where it's like it wasn't fun developing the first right, right. right? and so um,
0: did did you have any stuff where you were where on your end it was automation but you, the API that you were hitting was a was a manual process
1: Multiple, yeah. I mean, email. Send us an email and we'll sign your build. And we're like, no, no, no. We need. Well, what are you going to do? And, you know. So it was literally kind of interrogation. Like, what? What? Okay. <laughs> when I send you an email and I ask for this request or I fill out this form, yeah. What is? What actually happens? And then you had to sit there and pull on the string and say, okay. And then you copy it to this. And then okay, so you have a password for this thing. Like, how does this thing work? Okay, great. And then then you're going to copy it to here. It's like, okay, great. So it ends up needing to go into this directory that only you have access to. Okay, we need access to that directory and we'll copy it there. Right. Okay, great. And then the tool automatically picks up and signs it. Oh, okay, perfect. So so a lot of it was, you know, figuring out the 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 human mechanics of it for sure and and then figuring out where the code is that we can go write it. So So
2: Kevin, you felt so strongly that this the 7 days versus 10 was worth it.
1: For sure. No, it was it was incredibly valuable to our kind of getting to where we were in accompli. And we felt that if we had any chance of kind of hitting the goals that we had set for ourselves and that the board had set for us when they acquired the company in terms of growth and, and that we had to get to seven days and, and and basically be able to iterate as quickly. Otherwise, the the targets we set were gonna take us three or four times longer. Because if you for every time you lengthen the de- development cycle, I'm pretty firm believer now that, that it takes you that much longer to actually get your results, right? So if you know the whole game is how many shots do you have on the goal, and if you can do 50 uh, a year, you're a lot better off than the team that can only do 20, right? And so I think that was the fundamental thing: is that we can make you know 50 changes a year, and you know the size of the changes is, is not as important as how many you can make and how quickly you can iterate on that.
2: Well, great. We we really enjoyed you sharing your stories.
1: Yeah, that cool. Good. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly.
2: To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.